Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. And you can also find me at www.therapistinsaintlouis.com. Now with me today is Warner Leland. Yes, and Warner is a queer, non-binary human. I like this. I'm going to read it all. Mm, that spends their time on LGBTQIA, affirming research, and on sex education. Uh, they are a board-certified behavior analyst with Empowered, a center for sexuality in St. Louis, Missouri, with Upswing Advocates in Chicago, Illinois. They are the current research and dissemination liaison of the sexual behavior research and practice CIG, no, no, SIG, of ABAI. <laughs> It's so many letters, yeah. There are too many letters. A leader of Sex Positive St. Louis and a co-founder of the St. Louis Non-Monogamy Connection. Correct, Good, yeah. and you prefer they. They them pronounce. I, I saw That's it me. because it was in the. It was written in, but I wanted to understand. <laughs> I wanted to clarify. Like this is how you have the conversation for my audience. <laughs> is your what's your will you say what's your pronoun? And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What pronouns do you use? Yes, that's a good way to do it. Uh, oh, mine is just she. Oh, I'm like oh, you can call me whatever. So you can say hey, you. I don't care. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right, now before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. <laughs> Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked Laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. Well, so tell me a little bit about what you do and why you do it. Oh <laughs> we'll start just very broad. I mean, I, I do a myriad of things. Yeah, clearly. So. I had to read a lot there. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I mean, really pretty much anything centered on 
affirmation and autonomy for folks uh, is something that I love deeply. And uh, as much as that can be focused around sex, relationships and health and harm reduction in all of those components, uh, it tends to be where I gravitate. So um, I am part time in Chicago, Illinois at Upswing Advocates. We do um, predominantly trans affirming research and education, um, but it also spans a wide range of you know sexual health and LGBTQIA mm-hmm. uh, issues and work. And then here in St. Louis, I'm at Empower to Center for Sexuality, mm-hmm. and we do predominantly um, affirming work with uh, folks that want to work on any sort of uh, behavioral concerns or skill building as it pertains to sex, relationships, friendships. You know, you just spend a month in Chicago and a month here, or do you do it <laughs> in between week and, and weekends? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. It's pretty variable. Um, mm. Upswing has gotten to the point where most of our things are, are contained and uh, ready to go. So it's just I travel to go present things at this point and then run research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of the research we can do long distance at this point. Well, and I saw in your thing that you're going to present at ASECT. ASECT is the national certification for um, sex educators, counselors, and therapists. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be one of the presenters this year. Yes, that is happening. What are you presenting on? Uh, We are talking about uh, trans and intersex centric sex education across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're very, very, very lucky, you might get some sex education that's inclusive Mm -hmm. and we'll like briefly touch on trans issues or intersex issues, but it's very rare to find any sort of education that's like central to the knowledge that you need as a trans person or an intersex person or both um, for your sexual health. And if you do get that, it's still very like K through 12 geared and there's so much early education and then just across the lifespan Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, that we all deal with uh, that it's really valuable to have actual guidance on. Mm-hmm. Um, like also, what's an example? You know, just oh what kinds goodness. of things. I know there's a billion things you could use guidance on, but like just some two or three basic things that are like really common that people are going through that it's like, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, so absolutely early education when we start to think about consent and body autonomy. So many uh, intersex infants still have surgeries perform- performed on them. You know, obviously non-consensually, they're infants. Um, oh. oh, yeah. That's a thing that's still prominent here in the U.S. Uh, human rights groups are starting to speak out against it more, but uh, very common that um, to avoid uh, what many doctors will label as like unnecessary confusion or bullying or all of these sort of made up problems that exist socially, mm-hmm. uh, will elect to perform surgeries on someone that has genitalia that maybe doesn't align with a binary gender um, oh. and uh, then will assign that child a gender at birth. So they but, choose it and yeah. they, the, the child doesn't have any choice uh, in what happens. Yeah, what, what, the yeah. out, what are the outcomes of that? Oh, I mean, so... Super harmful, obviously, right? To have a t- invasive surgery at the infancy stage, um, but also many folks will not be told about this. Um, uh, will undergo like endocrine therapy throughout their lifespan, um, but it's very like hush hush. And many folks, not until far later in life, will find out that this was even sort of what was going on for them or why. Oh, um, so it's all hidden from them too, so they don't so have frequently. any. So then what, what's the impact? What do you see as the impact in that? I've actually not oh. heard many stories in this, so I'm oh, yeah. kind of really interested now. This is, yeah, no, this <laughs> I mean, is interested about everything. But... issue. Yeah. Yeah, well, so that's like solely related to if you have external genitalia that maybe don't mm-hmm. fall within an, a, a binary norm. Um, but there are like 23 different sort of umbrella mm-hmm. intersex differences or conditions as they're labeled these days um, with all sorts of variability underneath them. So if you have a chromosome difference or a hormone difference or, you know, all of these things... Um, it can impact your life to varying degrees. Um, and uh, definitely if you were assigned a gender that is not your gender and, yeah. and under 
went surgery, this can, you know, impact sexual health, sexual functioning later in life, mm-hmm. but also just sense of self-identity, feelings of autonomy and safety in your own mm-hmm. body across time. Like that's a very violating thing. And especially if it's been hidden from you your whole life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all, all sorts of really impactful things. Um, a lot of really beautiful advocacy. Um, uh, Interact is a beautiful youth uh group that focuses on um, intersex related issues in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Pigeon out of Chicago does a lot of advocacy to intersex surgeries. Uh, Lurie's uh, Children's Hospital is a space that does still um, mm-hmm. perform that work sometimes and so a lot of advocacy is done there. Uh, and there are definitely folks that are moving away from this. Uh, okay. But to, to not have any access to like the knowledge that that was even something that happened to you mm-hmm. um, and then like how to feel good in your body, how to interact with a body mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't... That maybe doesn't conf- feel like your own. Yeah, that doesn't feel like your own just as a human in the world. So maybe you're not intersex, but like how to interact with an intersex body. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, statistically as common as having red hair hmm. to have a difference of sex development or an intersex condition. That's super, interesting. I've never heard that. Super prominent, yeah. Huh. Um, between like... Uh, one in three percent, I believe, is the the range of citations you'll find in some of the research. Um, so it's uh, such a common thing for it to have so little, I guess, access and resource yeah. and like <laughs> ability to kind of explore that. You know, you say you do a little bit of sex, not a little bit, a lot of sex education, but like to not even have a whole <laughs> section of sex education for them. That even touches on this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or also like how to interact with somebody that has a body that doesn't fall into those you know neat binaries either. Like that's a whole entire other mm-hmm. conversation that would be so easy to just like include affirmation for. <laughs> you <laughs> know, such a great so idea. Easy to be like, you know, <laughs> not all bodies look exclusively <laughs> like this. <laughs> well, you know, I don't remember what research I was looking at, but it was saying that people struggle people struggle with something that they they can't quite categorize. And mm-hmm. so like um, some of the research was suggesting um, how well people do like in life is directly correlated with their ability to handle things that they can't c- categorize. Like their ability to get comfortable <laughs> with like, you know, instead of having like, no, you have to be this, you have to be this thing. And that's what you are. Like you're a girl and you're like, this is what you do. Like, and so like, a person's ability to kind of actually develop comfort in that actually is kind of correlated with their ability to be successful in life. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, like general psychological flexibility, right? It's like such a valuable trait to have and it absolutely ties into like your rigidity or not Mm -hmm. around things like gender and sexuality and how all of these things intersect with one another. So something I was really interested because I read she, sorry, they, my my mistake, they gave me a lot of very interesting things about yourself. And so I'm really (laughs) curious about, okay, so you mentioned sexual tools and sex toys as therapeutic devices. So I'm really curious how you use sex toys as um, a helpful tool in therapy. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of my favorite things to talk about. Awesome. Um, Let's uh, learn all uh, about it. Uh, I was working at a feminist sex toy shop as I was getting my master's degree in applied behavior analysis uh, and spent a large portion of my time just doing, it it feels so much like consultation work, honestly, Mm -hmm. like people come in uh, with a wide variety of, uh, you know, anxieties or fears or questions Mm -hmm. or, you know, excitement, all sorts of things um, that, you know, do you just like 
on the floor as a salesperson, basically, are holding space for and providing consultation around. Um, and most of the people that I worked with were also pursuing some sort of, you know, helping profession degree mm. at the master's or PhD level at that time, too. So um, it was very, um, like, highly educated in sex positive environment um, uh, with a lot of folks that very much were interested in, in, like, how is this, you know, going to be something that's beneficial to your life in general? Mm-hmm. And we would so frequently get people that were sent to the shop by their therapists, um, okay. whether that be couples like you need or to go there. <laughs> Sincerely, though, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for a wide variety of reasons. Um, but we would often uh, get couples, um, whether there be like desire discrepancy or just like shifts in their sexual interest over time or mm-hmm. boredom with the sex that they've been having for the past 20 years or like, hey, we're in our 80s now and our bodies, you know, don't self lubricate the way that they used to in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, all of these things that can really impact sexual functioning. Um, and so sex toys can be like such a meaningful way to explore mm-hmm. interpersonal sexuality um, and, uh, you know, uh, build pleasure uh, for folks that were hoping to like remain in a monogamous mm-hmm. relationship, uh, but also like really variable mm-hmm. amounts of desire, like learning how to enjoy your own body mm-hmm. and to have like healthy masturbation practices that aren't like stepping outside of your relationship is a really valuable tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that is really meaningful. A lot of talking about um Overdiagnosis, or what I personally would classify as misdiagnosis of you know sexual problems. Oh, uh, I gotcha. In the DSM, that really often, uh, in my personal opinion, can be just like variable interests in sex that then yeah. get diagnosed as like a problem. Well, even think um, of desire and arousal disorders as yeah, a basic one. I absolutely. mean, there's so much to that diagnosis because it depends on, do I like this person that I'm having sex mm-hmm. with? Or are we erotically engaged in some way? Is my mind involved or am I just so busy working? I don't think about, you know, like it's yeah. just, there's so much variance. And I think that one definitely gets overdiagnosed or yeah. overused when, Really, I mean, I think people just need to understand their bodies. Absolutely. And then so frequently, just like we would see heterosexuals, couples come in where like the concept of sex is that very linear narrative of like maybe a little bit of foreplay and penetrative sex and then sex is over. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, well, you're not really Like, oh, you don't know what good of, sex looks like, do yeah. you? <laughs> and And so frequently it's like, well, there are, you know toys and tools that absolutely can shift mm-hmm. what some of that looks like for you um, potentially. So, Well, I think that's that? a big reason why a lot of people in heterosexual relationships, females particularly, don't have orgasms yeah, because they absolutely. don't understand their bodies and it's that sort of, like you said, there's a little bit of foreplay and then it's penetration and that was supposed to work out for you, but it really isn't. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So that was just like such a big part of it. Um, and then also just considering like solo sex as well and mm-hmm. knowing your body and what your body likes. Um, and we often talk about like sexual tools and toys and mm-hmm. how there's like such an overlap there um, because there are um, so frequently that's where you go for um, like gender affirming devices as well. Mm-hmm. So whether that be like chest binders or packers, so mm-hmm. dildos that aren't for penetration or play, but are just for gender affirmation that sort of emulate the flaccid penis. Okay, I was going to say, will like you explain what's a chest binder or a packer? Because yeah. not all my, I'm not all, <laughs> you guys aren't all my clients. Not all my listeners actually know what those are. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So um, a packer would just be um, uh, something that would emulate a flaccid penis that somebody could wear um, uh, for you know gender affirming purposes throughout the day. Um, some of them have the capacity um, of what's called STP, stand to pee. Uh, mm-hmm. So you could use them at a urinal. Some don't. Some are just, you know, aesthetically and uh, sort of psychologically mm-hmm. uh, affirming to wear. Uh, chest binders um, are typically used uh, for folks that um, have chests that don't want the appearance of mm-hmm. breasts, um, uh, but who so maybe don't have, down. yeah, that maybe don't have access to something like a 
a gender affirming surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but because yeah, it would minimize that appearance. Something for people to be aware of. It's kind of expensive. Oh, uh, okay. A lot of the, like for people who are going through transitions, there's a lot of the surgeries or the options are not covered through insurance. Um, even something as simple as laser hair removal that somebody might want to, you know, have more clean skin instead of having to shave a beard if you don't identify as male, for example. Um, it's a very expensive thing to get laser hair removal. And so, you know, just having options like, and it's very expensive to get breast augmentation of any mm-hmm. kind, whether it's lowering or upping. Absolutely. And and if they, they don't always, cons- insurances don't always consider it, um, what's the word when they cover it? Like they don't consider medically it- Medically necessary. Medically yeah. ne- necessary. They consider it, what's the opposite? <laughs> Plastic <laughs> yeah. or uh, something? Like elective or elective. cosmetic. I don't know yeah. why I can't think no, of those good. words right <laughs> now, but those are like, you know what I'm- Yeah, absolutely. I'm not big in surgery right now. <laughs> Next year when I get my money. (laughs) But it's so expensive. There are so many barriers to access it. So um, cisgender folks that want these procedures for, Mm -hmm. you know, elective or cosmetic reasons often face far less barriers than folks Mm -hmm. that have medically necessitated reasons for seeking these surgeries. Well, and even to be fair, seeking therapists that are LGBTQIA friendly, um, that can be a barrier too because sometimes they're private pay as opposed to doing insurance. So there's there's a lot of barriers. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And so if you were to get access to something like um, affirming hormone therapy, sometimes if you're very lucky um, and have affirming medical providers, you can use an informed consent model and sort of Mm -hmm. demonstrate in the room with your physician that you have the capacity to consent, that you understand all the changes, whether they're going to be permanent or temporary, reversible or not, Mm -hmm. and access that. Um, uh, Many people, though, do have to go through long therapeutic processes to Mm -hmm. prove, you know, that they're experiencing some sort of distress related to their gender. And then if you're wanting surgery, like Absolutely. You have, you know, a couple of years of, of yeah. therapy and, and proving and a lot of um, what historically has been gatekeeping, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to access these things. So, yeah, for many folks, uh, just access to like basic tools like a chest binder or a packer mm-hmm. might be like all they really have access to for a long period of time. Um, Which really impacts their mental health and well-being. Yeah. You know, to feel like you can present as what you feel you're supposed to present as. Absolutely. And then some people just don't want surgery. Like, totally valid, you know, to be a trans person where that's not what you want. Yeah, no, because it's a lot of risk and Mm -hmm. it can impact sexual function in some cases. So I understand that. Yeah. And also then, like, fluidity, the ability to change day to day. Like, perhaps, you know, uh, you don't completely want to eliminate the experience of having breasts. But some days that's not something you're wanting, you know, so Mm -hmm. having that option. Is really valuable. So, so one of the things that's on this list that I'm really curious about is harm reduction, yes. and it's mentioned in two ways. She mentioned, uh, I keep, I'm so sorry. Right. I'm going to just call you Warner. <laughs> <laughs> I know, great practice opportunities. <laughs> well, you know, and I, also I'm modeling too. You can make yeah. a mistake, but you can you should own when you've made a mistake with somebody when they've already identified their gender that they prefer or their pronoun. So I do want you all to understand, like that's the way I screw up and say I'm sorry. I'm screwing this up. <laughs> yeah, and like I screw this up too all of the time. It's a it's a fluency thing, right? Like I if you haven't had access the to that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyhow, I'm interested in uh, harm reduction in terms of sex ed and kink, but kink first because sure. I already <laughs> talked about sex ed today. So you know, okay, talk about how you help people with harm reduction and kink. Oh my goodness. Well, so... <laughs> Unpack <laughs> <It's>, everything. <laughs> uh, so first of all, I would like to shout out the kink 
clinician guidelines that just got okay. published December 2019. Um, so yes, so many clinicians involved in this. I highly recommend visiting kinkguidelines.com. Uh, first of all, you can access for free like the full guidelines, which is That's beautiful, um, but also all of the information about the people involved um, is there. Um, but based originally off of um, a paper that uh, Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz and Charles Moser wrote, um, just wanted to make sure I got that correct because they very mm-hmm. much were at the helm of this project. Um, and uh, so much of it centers around uh, all of the things that are so important for clinicians to consider when we think about kink. Um, and so when I think about harm reduction, I definitely think about um, uh, focusing on things like consent, um, mm-hmm. being able to distinguish uh, consensual kink interactions from abuse, which is mm-hmm. something that a lot of clinicians like will raise concerns about. Um, I think about like the harms of social stigma. Mm-hmm. And then I also think how that can Im- about how that can impact therapeutic practices and the harm that we can inflict on our clients potentially um, by failing to hold affirming spaces for mm-hmm. them as clinicians. So um, yeah, where you basically, the way that can look is somebody comes in and they're saying, I'm, I have a kink relationship and they are having a consensual kink relationship, but you as a therapist are maybe saying, uh, I don't know if that's, is there something, there must be something wrong with you or kind of like assuming there's like, there's some sort of problem when that's not where you're coming in for in therapy. You're coming yeah. in to just discuss maybe this one portion of the issue. Um, so like being very open and accepting essentially of somebody who is living a kink lifestyle, whatever that looks like for mm-hmm. them and not assuming kind of stigma or some sort of trauma or, you know, yeah. all of the ways that therapists kind of do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and the guidelines, it's just everything you're mentioning have little sections that touch on all of these things because they're all really critical components um, that are important to be considering. Uh, so what's a typical reason somebody might need to talk about kink with you? Um, so I typically work with um, neurodivergent clients, mm-hmm. folks that are often not their own legal guardians. So I often don't have a lot of folks that are just like talking about their kink lifestyles or even have access to that. Um, uh, so that'll come out in, in really different ways. Um, but I would say on the whole, when folks are disclosing kink relationships, whether it be to like a clinician or a therapist or a counselor, or even just a friend, um, it can be just some like, information about their life to give you more a more robust picture of what's going on. Um, it might be because there's something related to it that they wish to discuss. So often there can be like a lot of internalized shame or guilt or stigma or like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, the people in my life are not affirming of this, but it's really important to me. Um, like lots of things surrounding um, the social aspects um, and like negative social implications of that lifestyle um, that maybe folks want space What do you think are the negative social impacts? Like, what are you seeing? Oh my goodness. It's, um, I mean, it all really comes back to like misinformation and stigma. Um, Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, like kink play or, uh, you know, like more taboo sexual practices um, uh, can sort of on the surface look like harm potentially to mm-hmm. people uh, and if you're a person that's experienced harm that can be really triggering it can be really hard to conceptualize that someone would elect or you know be enjoying uh, yeah. you know something like a physical impact like being mm-hmm. hit or being spanked um, mm-hmm. yeah 
uh, and and that's very much like the physical interactions too. There are all sorts of other non-physical mm-hmm. uh, types of kink play. There's you know sexual kink play. There's asexual kink play. There's a wide range of behaviors that can really fall under mm-hmm. what kink even is for someone and the specificity of it. Um, if it's unfamiliar, you know, can can be I think scary for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think instead of really like listening and understanding uh, that people. Uh, have the option to engage in it. Um, the two main sort of like theoretical practices right now are either as a leisure activity. Um, mm-hmm. It maps perfectly onto what leisure is for most people. Um, <laughs> I just do it on the side. Sure, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Um, and then also there's a school of thought that views it also almost as like akin to a sexual orientation as well. Where they're um, living a life pretty regularly that incorporates whatever that kink is. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the inability to really conceptualize in those ways and instead of stigmatize because these were things, you know, at one point in the DSM, you know, diagnosable diagnosable as mental conditions or mm-hmm. assumed to be related to trauma or abuse. Um yeah, that's the potential to cause a lot of harm if that's the mindset that you're coming from when mm-hmm. when really somebody's engaging in like a leisure activity. Well, and I've even noticed, so I have extra terms I add that aren't necessarily anywhere. They're just mine, but sure. I consider things like BDSM light or kink diet, diet kink. Sure. Because there's levels, I've noticed that a lot of times people are engaging in levels of it. Mm-hmm. And it's just not, because there's stereotypes or stigma around what it looks like. Like for example, that movie, oh, what was it? Fifty Shades of Grey, which I know there's a lot of debate. I'm not using this as an example, Don't but I'm, I'm just example. explaining that like, I think that was a cultural reference recently. Mm-hmm. And as a result, people developed a lot of views or values around what they thought kink looked sure. like or BDSM looked like, right? And so as a result, you know, I'll be in the office talking to people and I'm like, oh, you're engaging like kink light, you know? And they're like, what? No, no. But it's like, well, you kind of are. And so even explaining that there are ways that people kind of dabble. So there's the leisure where it's like, oh, I must do this every time. And then there's there's like, "Eh, every now and then I like to get spanked. Every now and then I like to get tied up or I really like leather. Not all the time, but they don't have to have it like for every single interaction. And so I kind of consider that like your kink light or your diet your diet BDSMs. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, and I feel like... um, it can be harmful too to just like close yourself off to letting yeah. yourself explore whether that's something you would like or not. So oh, like yeah. if you try it and you don't like it, then then don't do it again. That's, you know, absolutely fine. Um, exactly. But I think, you know, that there's such harm from these sort of social connotations too uh, that shuts people off from being like allowed to like play or explore mm-hmm. things that might be meaningful for them. Yeah. Well, and that's part of, I think that's even, like you said, it's part of an expanding sexuality is sometimes you you do get bored with certain kinds of sexual routines. And if it always looks a certain way, then exploring different concepts in kink or BDSM can actually be really nice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and be so, lovely. <laughs> and so there's like a, a little bit of like harm reduction terminology that gets thrown around. It used to be safe, sane, consensual would sort yes. of be like the umbrella term. These days you hear a lot more about like risk aware consensual kink. Okay. So moving away from this idea that you have to be like diagnosably sane (laughs) the idea that people that are like neurodivergent or if you happen to have like a mental illness or see a therapist that maybe you shouldn't be engaging in this at all right like the non-clinical way of saying is we're all crazy get over it (laughs) (laughs) yeah so like risk aware consensual kink uh, absolutely embodies some harm reduction practices so if you are engaging in any sort of play really there's going to be some inherent risk Um, Mm -hmm. even if you're engaging in vanilla sex Mm -hmm. you know some non-kink sex there's some risk involved right and some potential for harm you know interpersonally Mm -hmm. physically always uh so uh, 
having knowledge, being educated on what you're doing, um, being equipped with any sort of mm-hmm. tools that you would need for safety, um, really considering like if you are engaging in some play that's like heavier, has mm-hmm. the potential for more bodily damage, like does everybody involved have insurance? <laughs> no, but sincerely, like no, that's a reasonable request. Risks, you know, like what do you want to happen if, uh, you know, something isn't going right? Like hopefully everything is set up to where it always does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making sure that uh, you're playing with people that you feel safe about, that you've checked in and negotiated ahead of time, that mm-hmm. folks have safe words, that those safe words are always honored. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these are harm reduction practices. Well, and those are things. conversations around consent too. It Absolutely. sounds like you're making yeah. very clear one of all the risks of doing, well, let's use impact play since you mentioned sure. it. Impact play is some version of getting hit. Yeah. <laughs> like spanking, it can be all but related. Sometimes it's in other places too, mm-hmm. correct? Like it can be impact in other parts of your body. Yeah, and so this is a knowledge component, right? Like if you're playing with somebody that doesn't realize mm-hmm. that the spine is going to be an unsafe space to hit you, you're at a far higher risk level um, yeah. and a far higher potential for harm. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of knowledge around safe body areas to hit versus mm-hmm. not is going to do a lot to reduce that risk and reduce that harm. What are the safer places to hit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> now I just have so many questions. That's why I want to talk about kink because I haven't had a really good like in-depth kink conversation in a while. So I'm like, sure. all right, like where's a good place to be hit? So long as everybody's consenting and you've had all those conversations you described. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I would say, first of all, I'm this just brief overview. I highly recommend like actually looking for resources and, and building sure, the skill set sure. if you're engaging in this. Um, but so most people like will stick to uh, the butt um, or like upper thigh. Um, potentially you could do shoulders, um, upper arms, uh, but places with more muscle and fat, you're going to want to stay away from bone. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to want to stay away from uh, like n- places with nerves that you could potentially like hit or pinch. Um, mm. uh, yeah. Okay. So, and I mean, some of the conversations may look at how heavy or how intensely you want to be hit, what what objects you're going to be using. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, wait, hold on, Angela, take a step. <laughs> no, but like, so these are the kinds of conversations that, like, when people, and this can be a flirtatious conversation Absolutely. too. So this is the the challenge I think that everybody tends to have is they think of consent as this very business thing, but actually it can be a very sexual flirtatious conversation around. Well, this is how I like to be hit. But like, I, this is where I'm not okay with. So, you know, like mm-hmm. stop this here. But like, they can be flirty, they can be fun, but there do need to be very direct conversations where you're saying, hey, no hitting here. I don't want, yeah. if you don't want marks left, I don't want marks. Or if I'm mm-hmm. okay with marks here, but not okay here, because there's even context around that sure, as well. Absolutely. I remember, I, you know, I've had clients multiple different kink clients. And I remember, you know, I've always had that kind of risk assessment sort of thing too. And somebody was engaging in a form of like, I'd say a very rudimentary tattooing. That's okay. what, that's how I would describe it. Um, and I don't remember what it was called, but I just, there was cutting happening in some uh-huh. form in the skin and they were like making, yeah, I would say old fashioned tattoos would be the best okay. way to describe it. And my first thought was, do you have a medical book around just to make sure wherever you're, you know, like you're not going too deep in the skin, you know, like what are you, you know? And so I wasn't trying to approach anybody in that situation like, this is horrible that you're doing this. What's wrong with you? It was more, okay, if you're going to engage in this, what are ways that we make sure that it's safe? Are you knowing different areas where there could be arteries mm-hmm. or, you know, because you could die in certain yeah. circumstances if you're not aware of the risk. Sure, absolutely. And then like all of the harm reduction considerations for anything that's going to involve blood potentially in the first Mm -hmm. place too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do you have a 
safe way to dispose of these objects around you? Um, are you making sure that they are clean and sterile? Yeah, it, I, I was my next one. I was like, is it clean? People? Yeah. <laughs> like so all of true. these are really real considerations. Yeah, no. so. Do you have alcohol for right mm-hmm. after this kind of thing occurs so that you're making sure that it stays in? And then do you have access to a, a phone or, you know, doctor, medical? Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about medical insurance. It's like, oh, that's yeah. so smart. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're all, you know, things to consider. And uh, these are conversations that are going to be variable, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. maybe like doing like fuzzy handcuffs and some very light spanking in the bedroom, you're not maybe necessarily having That's these that deeper kink light I was medical talking about. conversations. Yeah. But if you're wanting to do something that involves like blood being drawn, that's a, you know, that's a far riskier behavior. Well, but to even throw in the, the whole thing, um, what are those wrist ties? Not So somebody, mm-hmm. I know of somebody who used those like, what are those tightening? Oh, um, like zip ties. Zip ties. Mm-hmm. Somebody used zip ties and they actually did scar because mm-hmm. you're like, okay, so fuzzy handcuffs aren't going to create as much of a, like, that's why they're fuzzy. So that, you know, when you're like, oh, stop you know it feels it still feels good but this person thought zip ties would be a good idea and they have permanent scarring around their wrist from the zip ties because you're you're, you got to think of the actions you take when you're Mm -hmm. having um any sort of intercourse or um we call it queer sex too because queer sex can be all across the board and i i kind of think it's better sex but Mm -hmm. that's just me anyhow you know like so when you're doing this and you're moving around like there's a pulling on the skin and that's Mm -hmm. something that it's a risk that even they weren't even thinking. They're like, oh, this is just tying ourselves up. It's not a big deal. Yeah. But there are some risks. Absolutely. And that's why I always like, I'm a <laughs> big, big advocate for like, Google whatever activity you're wanting Google to get into. It. <laughs> and Google, Google that term plus BDSM and Google that plus BDSM and safety. Because oh, like, I love it. Yeah, because truly there are so many resources out mm-hmm. there and so many people that are willing to share their like, oops. Kind like, of oh, I kind of screwed this. Because yeah. that's the thing is sometimes you get into it and you don't realize. I mean, I'm sure those people didn't know that that was going to occur, you yeah. know. And that's one that like in your head probably like sounds like it would be a little bit safer. Yeah. Right? Like you're not maybe drawing any blood. I wouldn't so have thought just, it yeah. either. No. When I heard it, I was like, oh, that's a good to know yeah. for later. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, like the potential to cut off circulation, you oh, know. Yeah. Um, if you have people that you're playing with that have any sort of chronic illness, chronic pain, you know, mm-hmm. autoimmune disorders, uh, physical disabilities, that's is shifting the potential for these harms too as well with the body. So, so. even going back to the sex toys that you're, t- I also used yeah. to work in a sex store for a while before yeah. I got my degree. And I remember we had this conversation about like those cock rings, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, don't let them stay on there for longer yeah. than 30 minutes because mm-hmm. you're cutting off blood circulation yeah. and people don't always think about blood but circulation. People will fall asleep in them. Like that's terrifying That is to horrible. Me. Yeah, <laughs> you but really you don't need know, that, right? Like, how exactly. would you know if you don't know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely the same thing. Yes, if you're using cock rings, no longer than thirty minutes. No time. longer than thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> should be gently snug. Should never cause pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You. But important, Thank right? You. Yeah. And I will say, if you ever do go to a sex store, the people who work there tend to be the coolest people. They're people like us, actually. <laughs> no, they are. Like, I was an aspiring sex therapist, <laughs> you know, and obviously you were too yeah. in some ways. So it's like, yeah, the people who work there tend to really care about sex. They tend to have tried this stuff, you know. So mm-hmm. I remember, like, that was a part of, like, helping people out was you were like, oh, this one works. Don't use this one. It's just not strong enough. Mm-hmm. I also learned that if you put a vibrator on the end of your nose, you can tell how strong it is. That yeah. was so fun. That's going to be your most sensitive, mm-hmm. like, just non non sexual part. Yeah. I know. It was yeah. so cool. I was like, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And yes. I, even though I talk about this all the time, I still have weird embarrassment around it. It's so fun. <laughs> but I feel like that's why it's so important to talk about, too. Absolutely. Because, like, the more access you're getting to talking about it in the first place is, mm-hmm. is going to reduce 
that embarrassment and pain that comes up with talking about it. Yeah. So whether you're a therapist <laughs> or, you know, just a human in the world, like mm-hmm. it's so valuable. So a lot of what you do it can be kind of harm reduction, but just to explain, harm reduction is just looking at potential risk and making sure people are educated so they're making the best decisions. You may still get harm, <laughs> you yeah, know, like uh, impact play, for example. Yeah, it's going to be painful, mm-hmm. but if that's what you want, then you can get something out of it. And as long as it's consensual, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's a modality that um, really takes a look at a spectrum of choices from doing nothing to reduce your risk one end um, to like abstinence of a harmful behavior totally on the Mm -hmm. other end and so I was like okay so where are our fears around this behavior right like what are really real fears and the hierarchy of those like death is going to be the biggest one right like we want to make sure we're reducing the possibility of you dying Mm -hmm. in in these situations Um, but then also looking at like all of the other harms and like what's going to be more harmful for one person in a situation is going to be you know different than another person so um, Mm -hmm. taking a look at all of those you know physical factors uh, you know biological psycho social sort of interpersonal things uh, that have the potential for harm and looking at like what's actually going to be harmful for you, what is going to reduce those risks for you in that moment and really centering um, individual autonomy in those choices. Um, so so I have a, a, a hard question, but yeah. or it could be easy for you. I don't know. How do you draw lines on whether it's abusive versus consensual kink? Yeah, that's a really great question, right? <laughs> um, Everybody's wanting to know. <laughs> Yeah. So first of all, I would point you to those kink guidelines. <laughs> sure. Again. And, and, no, but sincerely, say uh, recommend taking a look at like that and the literature around this because it's a really hard thing to hold space for, and especially if you're a therapist or a mandated reporter in any way, mm-hmm. um, you really like do have a serious duty to be um, critically assessing this. Um, the main thing broached in the guidelines because it doesn't delve super deeply into this because there is not a ton of research on this right now um, is noting that uh, you can have abuse or intimate partner violence or domestic violence happening um in a kink relationship it's it's not they're not the same thing yeah Um, but they're not also independent of one another Mm -hmm. um just because somebody is saying that they're doing kink doesn't mean that there isn't like abuse or harm happening in that situation um so it's important to note that like screeners for abuse um are there isn't anything really out there that's going to be easy Mm -hmm. um as a checklist uh that takes into account the the kink lifestyle like Mm -hmm. all of those questions are vague enough to where like you could be engaging in consensual healthy kink and you know be flagged for abuse versus not So I think, I mean, the core things to look out for, um, first of all, are, um, has there been negotiation ahead of time? Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have a safe word? So like, do you have a way to get out of this situation that's always Mm -hmm. going to be honored um, versus not? um, uh, In some research of folks that have uh, done 24-7 lifestyle kink play, so I submit to you and your choices all of the time. I can't really say no. Um, uh, I want to say, oh, I'll have to go back and look at those stats. Um, But like a significant number of folks said that they had been engaged in relationships previously like that, where like their safe words weren't honored. So when they had said like, no, time out, rubber ducky, whatever, you know, the the code Mm -hmm. word for, hey, we're actually stopping this right now um, happened. uh, That that was not honored. It was blown past um, by the people with more power in that situation. So that's going to be a huge red flag, Mm -hmm. right? If your ability to opt out is removed. Um, But then also I think failure to uh, really ahead of time, uh, you know, be asking these questions about, you know, like things that may actually cause some serious like physical or psychological, Mm -hmm. you know, or interpersonal harm uh, can also potentially be really big red flags as well. I'm always looking for coercion too. It's a really hard one because it's kind of 
it can be a little under the table, I've noticed that like people, you know, so they'll they'll overtly talk through some of this stuff, but there can be coercion around um like this is what I want or I want it more. And like so for example, I've I've had multiple kink couples and I remember there was one situation where there wasn't some basic conversation around like female sexuality. Okay, so it was a heterosexual couple, but like what is what is normal female sexuality? Well, so I'm not saying everybody's so I never generalize, but it'll sound generalized. So I just I'm just gonna own it, right? But um, so quite a few women don't want to go straight for a blowjob. You know, like that doesn't mean you can't, but like sometimes you kind of need to. I don't know, have a conversation. <laughs> just like, sure. hey, how you doing? How was your day? Um, so going straight for this sense of like in a power dynamic, like you need to go down on me right now. If that's not like already a talked about and agreed upon, I'm like, yeah, that's something that actually works with me. Um, or, you know what, I thought that works for me in some circumstances, but in some other day cases when I've had a bad day, I really just, I don't want you to, do, I can't, I can't. I need there to be this space where I can say, nah, it's just not a good day. I do like it in some circumstances, for example, because there may be like a power dynamic of, it is exciting when you just tell me what to do because there is an excitement sure. there. But there has to be kind of an understanding around, like, there's still there's certain levels of how people get sexual and what gets them into that space. And some of it can be the power dynamic, but some of it can just be basic. I need some buildup to get to this space. And if there's no understanding of that in me, then you can be kind of guiding me or coercing me into doing things for you that are still sexy in some ways, but they're not sexy in other ways. Does yeah, that make sense? Absolutely. And I think <laughs> a big thing that comes up, too, is that... It's important to know that that's not always malicious when that's happening. Sometimes, oh no, I think it's not like it's unintentional. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but like unintentional coercion is still coercion now, and I think that's exactly the thing that people sometimes miss is like maybe I'm doing this because I assumed you thought it was going to be hot, and we just never had a conversation about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, figuring out how to talk about these things and and letting mm-hmm. that still be sexy, but also letting it inform what's actually going on is so so mm-hmm. so crucial to to step away from some of these more harmful spaces or things that uh, have the potential to be abusive. I think also, even in relationships that aren't necessarily playing in kink, I've I've learned so many things from studying kink relationships and studying non-monogamous relationships, mm-hmm. af- actually, that, that really, for people who are in the vanilla realm, like, they need this because that sure. unintentional coercion is happening there for Absolutely. people. And it often happens with, you didn't want to have sex with me. Why don't you want to have sex? You know, like, in just this sense of, like, how often they're doing it, how they're engaging, how they're initiating or not initiating. And yeah. that's why I, a lot of, I guess it's my theme this year, is, like, where's coercion occurring? I'm sure a lot of times it's unintentional actually, but when people aren't made aware of how they can do that, then there can be, again, unintentional harm that's occurring that really causes people's desire to tank. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this comes back to these conversations about desire discrepancy too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's really hard to not have coercion on some level, usually from both parties, uh, if there's a discrepancy in what's wanted. Um, Because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you love somebody and care about them, there's definitely a desire to like shift what you're doing to meet somebody's needs. And, uh, you know, it gets really hard to know when that's crossing a line. Yeah, Um, because there is drawing each other into things too, you know, like so... Yeah. Right? And this is so, but this is in, in vanilla <laughs> like some dynamics. Some of it's not coercion. Some of it's like enticing, right? You know, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to, yeah. Yeah. And then so, hmm. like, considering that in vanilla spaces is a little bit easier, considering that in kink spaces. And then if you're holding spaces with, you know, a therapist or a counselor or whatever, that does get more sticky, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's really challenging sometimes to be able to 
to help people parse apart, you know, like, Mm -hmm. is this enticement? Is this coercion? Is this what you want? In what context is it what you want? And then how am I just going to have good sex, damn it? (laughs) Right? Yeah, these are big conversations. It's a lot to consider. You know, it's funny. So a weird sidebar, but like I've I've learned that as a result of people wanting to be respectful. So Mm -hmm. like most people... Most people are on the side of like, I care about you yeah. and I want to be good to you. And so I've seen that it can go in the opposite direction of people struggling to just own their sexuality as a result because they're so worried about, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, accidentally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they feel kind of frozen even in being able to initiate and start mm-hmm. sexual interactions. Yeah. Have you seen that at all? Oh, or? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a complicated, complicated dynamic. What do we dynamic? do? <laughs> so, okay, I want to talk a little about you do behavioral analysis and sexual harm reduction. So talk about how those intersect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I am a deep believer in harm reduction as a modality for behavior analysts, behavior analysis, and personally feel like it should be the only modality used okay. um, in line with our ethical values, simply because uh, we have an ethical obligation to focus on client autonomy, right? Okay. Like, what are your individual values? How do we get you toward your, your goals? You yeah, know? so you not telling yeah. somebody yeah. what to do, but like respecting where they're at, but then helping them to do it with the yeah. risk assessment. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and then so, for so many folks that get behavior analytics services, it's often neurodivergent folks, often not their own legal guardians, um, or there are other people involved in their care. And so there's a lot of, um, again, usually not malicious in any way, but to some degree coercion mm-hmm. of, you know, what your beliefs and your values and your behavior should look like from all of these people around you. Mm-hmm. And so helping somebody identify really like, no, what is what is you? What is your own individual yeah. value and goal here? What are you wanting in your world, in your life? Um, and mm-hmm. then how does that tie to sexuality for you or relationships, whether they're sexual or or not um, is a big part of that work. Um, so a big part of it, I mean, just another part of it is helping them develop their own autonomy, essentially. Yeah, entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any hijinks with that? <laughs> any hijinks with that? <laughs> no, I like that particular <laughs> word. Say more. What do you mean by Tell hijinks? me your hijinks. You know, like struggles of, like, how do you find that struggle? Like, so the worldview around is, no, this is what it needs to be. But the person is developing an autonomy that's, I want it to be this way. So what hijinks ensue? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, well, so it's, it's interpersonal. So it's always hijinks, right? <laughs> like anytime that you have values diverging from somebody mm-hmm. that you care about, that's a really hard thing to have going on. And if you're like the guardian of somebody or involved in the care of somebody that has values that are starting to diverge from your own, that's, you know, that can be really incredibly challenging. So what do you do to help them understand? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of perspective taking. It's a lot of understanding that um, our primary client is our primary client. We're honoring their goals and their values, but that also we have a responsibility to them as like a human in the world and the people that are around them Mm -hmm. as well. So, so much of the work is, is direct work on, you know, building your own autonomy, figuring out what you like and what you don't like, Um, you know, whether that be interpersonally, relationally, sexually or not, uh, all of those things. Um, But then also really working with, uh, you know, caregivers and, you know, other vested parties on how do you, you know, how do you hold affirming space for somebody when you know what they want isn't what you want necessarily Mm -hmm. um and that's a big part of it too that's a yeah I would argue the more challenging part truly I always feel like it is because you know I mean I well it's still hard to kind of figure out yourself for everyone Mm -hmm. you know it's like who am I what do I want what feels right to me is is one path but then it's how do I either surround my so if you have a little more um, self-control or that's not the word I'm looking for if you have a little more 
control in your life, mm-hmm. then you can choose who to bring in mm-hmm. to be your support so that you don't have to be fighting yourself constantly. Sure. But in cases like this, there's a caretaker who kind of, I mean, they have control in the situation sometimes. So it can be harder. So it's like, well, this is how I am, but this is who you are. And if they're not open or respecting or willing in any way to kind of, I could just see a lot of... <laughs> A lot of difficulty. I like, I don't know why I'm using fingers, but you know. Yeah, no. Well, and it gets incredibly challenging, especially when we get into the like adults who are not their own legal guardian realm as well, because a legal guardian does have the right to restrict your ability to have sex with someone. Um, Really? Yes, absolutely. So if you are an adult, but not your own legal guardian, um, you may be barred from ever engaging in sexual activity legally by that person. There's a lot of conversations around like capacity to consent and what that looks like. I feel like there's a lot of fear and desire to protect people. I've never seen it coming from a malicious place. Again, it always seems to be coming from a place of care, but definitely overly restrictive in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. um, and not really allowing for flexibility in somebody's skill set to change, um, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, well, and you just imagine yourself, somebody saying that to you. you yeah. You're just never allowed to have sex with mm-hmm. anyone. The end, like, yeah. the outrage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, I feel like I talked to you forever. I can't, though. <laughs> so we are at the end of the podcast. My quick question is, what's like a final piece of it? I know, you know, you've got a lot of information, but like, this is your nugget to send to the world. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I know, like sum it all up in one <laughs> sentence. No, I'm just kidding, but it's really actually that's what I'm asking you to do. Yeah. Yeah, truly, I would say that um, all of these uh, conversations that we had around sex are so crucial to just day-to-day interactions. It's, you know, it's really honoring consent, honoring autonomy, Mm -hmm. uh, honoring perspective taking for different values. And so this is so doable across the lifespan. This is doable in all of your interactions that have nothing to do with sex ever. Um, And the earlier we can, you know, promote this Mm -hmm. um, and the more frequently we can promote this just across space and time, uh, I think the better off we're all going to be and being able to be good to one another. Thank you for coming on, Warner. And you are with Empowered, a center for sexuality in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And how can they find you? Uh, that is empoweredcenter.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I am Angela Skirtu. You've been listening to www.aboutsexpodcast.com. And you can also find me as a therapist at www.therapistinsaintlouis.com. Thank you for joining me and stay kinky, St. Louis. Mm-hmm.